0: it's the pete calendar show with more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in north carolina pete calendar is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time because he's a giver and now here's pete
1: what's going on it is september 22nd welcome to the show thanks for listening the show is made possible by fantastic people, a.k.a. patrons, such as Kathleen, Ben, and Gene, Shan, Lisbeth, Mark, Chris, Daryl, Les, David, Joseph, John, Dennis, and Brian. Thanks so much for all of the support. I couldn't do the show without you. They became patrons to the program, and uh, you can, too. Just go to ThePeteCalendarShow.com. There are also links in the description of the podcast. Uh, Also, the show is made possible by sponsors like Schaefer Smith Design. You know your website is really, really important. You know this now more than ever. You need it to turn up in search results. You want it to look good. You want it to look professional. You want it to look user-friendly or be user-friendly. And while you do know your business, you might not know a lot about website design and maintenance, But you're in luck because my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design does. Great design can actually solve a lot of your website's problems. Professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith can help you with graphics and photos, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. He even does logos. He'll custom fit his services to what you need and nothing more. Go to SchaeferSmith.com and get the most out of your website. That's SchaeferSmith.com. Science moves very quickly, but never as quickly as it seemed to last week. One day, no more than 50 people could gather at a 50,000-seat stadium. Within 24 hours, it was now safe for seven times that many people to gather in the same place. One day we were told that we got to keep the schools closed because it'll kill all the kids, but then 24 hours later we're told the schools could reopen with school buses at full capacity. North Carolina Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger joins me now, and he advocated for the opening of schools before the governor announced that he would allow it. So welcome to the program, Senator. How are you?
0: I'm fine, Pete. I hope you are.
1: I am doing well. So uh, do do you think that your call... To reopen the schools had any influence on Governor
0: Cooper's decision? You know, I'll let folks decide uh, whether or not the timing of the governor's decision uh, had uh, had anything to do with uh, with the press conference that we had. I actually think uh, the governor was uh, previously receiving a lot of feedback from parents uh, and from teachers uh, who uh, were frustrated uh, with the uh, so-called virtual learning environment uh were convinced that uh children could go back uh full time in person 5 days a week uh without there being uh a health risk to the vast majority of those children uh and uh i i think um uh, our press conference might have been just the little tip that uh that pushed it uh, forward but um uh, yeah, you know he still didn't go far enough as far as i'm concerned how so well, uh, what he did is uh, is is in essence a dodge. He uh, he basically said the local systems may uh, provide just for kindergarten through fifth grade uh, full time in person instruction for uh, for students, uh, but he left it up to the local systems, which normally I'm fine with uh, local systems uh, making decisions. I think local control is uh, is important. Uh, but I also know that, uh, that, that the situation in the larger counties, uh, Wake, uh, Mecklenburg, uh, Guilford, Forsyth, uh, Buncombe, uh, likely is going to be, uh, influenced by what the NCAE, uh, says. And, and uh, the NCAE came out immediately, uh, with, uh, with an announcement that they were going to lobby local systems to, uh, prohibit the uh, return to uh, full-time in-classroom instruction even for the elementary students. So uh, so I, I don't think he went far enough. I think it was a dodge. I think he's trying to have it both ways, uh, and I think uh, it's just another example of uh, no leadership uh, being provided by this governor.
1: So the NCAE, from what I understand, their membership numbers are sort of masked from public view. We don't know how many, how many members there actually are. Uh, so do you believe they have that kind of influence? Cause the numbers I've seen, it's, it, it's single digit percentage of total teachers in the state. Do you think they have that kind of influence?
0: I think in some systems they do. Uh, here's the way I describe the NCAAE NCAA, uh, as far as that's concerned. Uh, and it is they represent maybe 10% of the teachers, but make 95% of the noise uh, about teachers. And uh, I think the vast majority of teachers are ready to get back to school. They're ready to get back in the classroom with their students. Uh, but the NCAA, uh, is, uh, is is going to fight that uh and I, I think unfortunately local school boards uh oftentimes are populated by people who feel that uh the ncae is the reason they got elected and so uh so it's uh it 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 is uh, something that i have uh, great concern about i mean time will tell uh, we'll see whether or not the local systems are able to withstand uh that uh, lobbying uh but I, I think the right thing for all of the schools in North Carolina, not just the uh, K-5 schools, but all of the schools uh, in North Carolina, the right thing for them to do would be to give parents the option uh, for their children uh, to attend school full-time, five days a week in person. Uh, And if parents decide they want their children on some sort of modified virtual schedule, let them choose that as well. But uh, I, uh, I, I think we've seen uh, in uh, the examples that are out there of, uh, of school environments where parents do have that kind of choice that the vast majority of parents want their kids back in school. Uh, and uh, and again, uh, the teachers that I talk to, uh, and I talk to a lot of them, uh, they uh, uh, invariably want to get back in the classroom and want their kids back as well.
1: Since the beginning of all of the lockdowns, particularly with regards to the schools, I have thought, wow, you know, how far behind is North Carolina on school choice because of the Democratic control for so long and the cap on charter schools, for example, like just that entire sort of philosophy, how much different the response could have looked to the pandemic had there been more options available for parents to choose from at this time? Um, and I just wonder, is, is, is this going to be or can this be sort of a, a pivot point in the traditional status quo idea of what K-12 education looks like?
0: Yeah, I, I think it, uh, it has been in some respects because we have seen uh, those charter schools that had vacancies, uh, uh, f- uh, those vacancies uh, tend to have disappeared uh private schools all across the state that uh that had openings uh are now full. Uh we have seen uh, a, a real rush uh by parents to uh to get certified as homeschooling parents. Uh and uh I, I, I do believe that uh the uh the the situation over the past several months has uh given parents uh, an opportunity to take a closer look at the traditional public schools, and for many parents, uh, the uh, that closer look uh, has led them to uh, look for alternatives. And uh, while I I believe we're seeing that uh, in uh, in in terms of parents, we're also seeing it in survey results. Uh, I, I think the key thing is going to be whether or not elected officials uh, will uh, be willing to support policies that uh that, that actually provide parents with uh, more of those kinds of options and unfortunately you know governor cooper has uh, basically pledged uh to the traditional uh public school lobby uh and to the ncae that he will do everything he can to undo uh the current opportunity scholarship program uh and uh it's uh, my belief that uh, he also uh will uh, will push to limit the expansion of charter school options uh, out there. So uh, I, I, I I am seeing this on a whole range of issues out there that the delineation between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, between your traditional Democratic candidate and your Republican candidate, is uh, stark on a number of issues, and school choice is just one of them.
1: Yeah, I spoke over the last few months with uh, Marcus Brandon, uh, one of your former colleagues, Joel Ford, both Democrats, uh, former lawmakers, and, you know, they keep pointing out, like, Among the black uh, citizens in North Carolina, this is a a very popular uh, uh, program, the Opportunity Scholarships and the Democratic Party governs against the will of so many of its own constituents on this. And at some point that message collapses if you're the Democrats or breaks through for Republicans. So I guess how do you (laughs) help further that along?
0: Well, I, I think we, uh, we we make sure that we communicate with to, with folks who uh, are like minded as far as uh, this issue is concerned. And you mentioned uh, two folks, you know, Joel Ford was a Democratic member of the North Carolina Senate. Yeah. Uh, Marcus Brandon, uh, uh, Democratic elected uh, 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 representative. Uh, and, and so uh, they understand uh, what's going on in uh, in the black community with reference to support. Uh, for education alternatives particularly support for opportunity scholarships the problem is the leadership of the democratic party uh, has not heard that message yet uh, and uh, certainly has not uh, altered uh, positions uh, in order to uh, to to uh, i guess uh, enable uh, some of the elected democrats to uh, to vote as their constituents would like the exceptions generally are uh, some African American elected Democrats uh, have uh, have certainly been very supportive of school choice, been very supportive of opportunity scholarships, uh, been very supportive because they are the ones uh, who are seeing in their communities uh, how the traditional public schools are too often failing too many of the kids uh, that uh, that grow up uh, in uh, in environments that, uh, uh, that 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 include low income.
1: Yeah. Uh, Let me shift gears real quick with uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, Mandy Cohen. I noticed at the last press conference that they did the briefing, uh, she started talking about risk assessment and different age groups and trying to sort of quell fears that kids, when they go back to school, uh, that the risk of them getting COVID-19 or dying from COVID-19, uh, it's very, very, very low. And um, this misperception, I saw there was a Gallup survey that was done for Franklin Templeton Financial Services, and the, the misperceptions that people have about the risks, and I'm not saying there aren't any risks, but the misperception is so wide from the reality, and it was particularly wider among Democrats uh, and and I wonder. Uh, so is this possible that that the Cooper administration and uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services that their recommendations and such are coming from this misperception, and that's why the uh, the risk assessment seems off, uh, or is this? I don't know. I mean, I, I try not to ascribe motives to people, right, because I don't know. Um, but it just seems like there was this shift that occurred at the last press briefing where she's now talking about actual risk. Do you think that there was a reason for this shift? I'm not asking you to apply motive either. Um, but is, the, is there some sort of a reason coming out of Raleigh that might explain this?
0: So uh, I, I think the science that uh, is relied upon by the Cooper administration uh, is science that uh, is, uh, is determined by the politics of the situation. Uh, and uh, that what we have seen is uh, for the uh, last several months, uh, they have spent uh, every day uh, trying to um, scare people uh, by uh, emphasizing uh, positive cases, emphasizing number of deaths, uh, emphasizing uh, percent positives, uh, and uh, ignoring uh, the real science that's out there uh, that uh, that actually shows that uh, regardless of how many positive cases you have, uh, there's a very low number of folks that end up in the hospital. Uh, regardless of the uh, number of folks that you see in the hospital, there's a very low number of those folks who are in intensive care, and they don't emphasize or have not emphasized those, but once the politics on opening schools changed and the governor was uh, going to get out there and talk about opening schools, then all of a sudden the emphasis uh, from the, uh, the the chief scientist for the governor uh, changed. I, I don't think the real science changed. Uh, I think the uh, the political needs of what to emphasize changed. And I think that's one of the real unfortunate things that we have seen uh, in, uh, in connection with COVID. Uh, we were told at the very beginning that, uh, we didn't know a whole lot about, uh, this disease, that, uh, the big risk that was out there was that we were going to, uh, overwhelm our health resources, that we were going to see a run on our hospitals and a run uh, on ventilators. Well, the rea- and so that was the reason we had to shut everything down. Um, now that we know a lot more about how the disease uh, is transmitted a lot more about uh, how serious it is and what populations uh, it is most serious for uh, we we've uh, we've not seen the administration really change uh, their original lockdown strategy and uh, i've got to believe they think that uh, there's a political advantage. To uh, to scaring people and to uh, to uh, to putting uh, the state uh, economy uh, into uh, what uh, initially was a real tailspin. Uh, and uh, again, I, I I just think the hypocrisy of uh, of some of what's going on is uh, is glaring, especially in light of the significant change uh, you've seen in the emphasis. Based on the change in uh, what the governor decided was best for his political career,
1: I tried to give the governor wide latitude at the very beginning. All elected officials, because I didn't know, y- y'all didn't know, nobody knew what this thing was, how it was going to behave. It's one of the reasons why I supported when when you came out with the uh, the proposal to get you know uh, the testing out there and just just get some data. And like it, it seems there's a, there's been a disconnect. Like we're either practicing battlefield medicine or we're not and if we are then we need to just do an all of the above approach right like just see what works and try to get as much information as possible and i i thought it was very telling the reaction that your office got the legislature got when you went forward with the the funding for the wake baptist uh study like to me that just seemed smart to get as to get more information and i guess i should have been a, i guess i should have been more cynical <laughs> at the beginning to know that that would have been the reaction
0: Well, you know, um, at the very beginning, um, I had a conversation with the governor uh, when uh, when when he was uh, making the decision to close the the bars and the restaurants and that sort of thing. And and I told him that uh, I couldn't argue with his decision. I I, I felt like uh, that was a decision uh, where, given the limited amount of information that we had, it was better for us to be safe than sorry. And uh, and and so I was I was supportive of that uh, initial uh, decision. But as we have learned uh, more about uh, the disease and as we have seen uh, what uh, impact uh, it, it has had and is having on our health resources, I just think uh, we, we need to open things back up. I don't think there's a reason for things to be locked down like they are. I think some of the most ridiculous pictures in the world uh, are the pictures of, full, of, of fully empty <laughs> no, <that's not> <laughs> uh, stadiums uh, and, uh, and 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 football teams uh, playing there yeah uh, it, it, it's ridiculous and then of course uh, uh, lieutenant the lieutenant governor is out there and uh, he is uh, he's having events and he's having uh, a lot of people in indoors and some outdoors and uh, the only thing you hear from the Cooper administration is that uh, he's uh, he's putting people at risk and yet uh, you see, statewide, the numbers continuing to go down, uh, and, uh, and and I just uh, I, I I can't fully appreciate or understand uh, what is motivating the decisions that the governor is uh, has been making since those initial decisions. Other than it's got to be about politics, yeah. because it's clearly not about science.
1: Yeah, if you don't understand the results, reassess the assumptions. And its uh, I, I find myself constantly doing it because I don't understand some of these, <laughs> some of the actions, right. some of the results, yeah. Uh, North Carolina Senator and President Pro Tem Phil Berger, anything else you would like to add that uh, you think is important or interesting for folks to know before we let you go?
0: Now, uh, Pete, uh, just thank you for what you're doing. Uh, I, I talk radio and uh, folks like you. Uh, Getting the word out is uh, critically important uh, because uh, the alternative media uh, opportunities that that are out there are 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 a way for folks uh, to uh, actually get information. They can make up their own minds as to what they think is right.
1: It really is a new day. Like on yeah, the the media landscape has shifted so fast uh, and so uh, so much in the last five years. It's this like this opportunity would never have been available to me when i you know eight years ago when i left charlotte and went to Asheville, just a completely whole new landscape so uh thank you very much for joining me i do appreciate it and uh, we look forward to having you back on whenever you'd like sure thanks Pete. take care all right fall is here but that means winter is coming you know you need some yard equipment for both of these seasons okay so think back last fall were you promising that this is going to be the last season that i use this crummy leaf blower If you said that about any of your power equipment, then you need to get into the Husqvarna fall sale at General Equipment Rental going on now through the end of October. Take advantage of the big savings on gas-powered and battery-powered equipment. Go to generalrents.com and check out the chainsaws. They've got all different sizes, uh, depending on the size of the property you've got, the size of the trees you've got. Uh, They've got leaf blowers, saws, trimmers, lawnmowers. Uh, I was looking at one the other day, it's one of those robotic auto mowers. This thing is so cool. It's like a it's like a Roomba, but for your lawn. Um, maybe you need something a little bit bigger, though. General Equipment Rental has incredible deals right now on riding mowers and pro-grade stand-on mowers. And uh, no, that does not count towards your steps. Sorry, guys. Uh, go to GeneralRents.com and get pre-qualified for 0% APR for 48 months. That's no interest for four years. You can also learn about the commercial fleet discounts as well. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville its at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road, family owned and operated for three generations. And keep in mind, maybe you just need to use one of their tools once for a specific project, okay? Well, General Equipment Rental is your source for all of your equipment needs. Everything from lawn and garden equipment to construction and earth moving. They've got air tools and compressors and scaffolding, large power tools, small ones, basically everything, okay? I learned a long time ago, actually, that uh, whether I was working on my car, I was working on my house, that if you have the right tool for the job you're doing, you can basically do anything. And that is really empowering, okay? And they will help you uh, with the tool that you are renting from them, okay? So buying or renting, they're going to walk through what the equipment does, how to use it, and they're going to be there for you. Whatever the project, General Equipment Rental has the tool that you need. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, generalrents.com. Think outside your toolbox. So, all right, our friend Becky Gray at Carolina Journal had a piece called Cooper's Post- COVID-19 plans should worry all North Carolinians. And she says Governor Roy Cooper owns this. He owns the coronavirus response and everything that will follow. Governor Cooper has refused to confer with the Council of State. He vetoed the General Assembly's efforts to get businesses safely opened and people back to work. He relied solely on his own administration's data and science. And he blamed President Trump and the Republican General Assembly when it was convenient for him to do so. And he took credit when it fit his political agenda. His decisions over the past few months will define his leadership and leave North Carolina with lasting marks. North Carolina will be worse off if he continues to get his way without a check from the General Assembly or the judicial branch. I got to tell you, I have read uh, Becky Gray's work for years. I've I've spoken with her. I've done I don't even know how many interviews with her. Talked with her for years. I've never heard her as fired up <laughs> as I as I see in this piece. Okay, uh, she's just unloading on Cooper. And when you get Becky Gray. To get this fired up over something, you know it's important. She says he shut the state down in March. Unemployment soared. Businesses closed. Every student got homeschooled. People died alone in hospitals. North Carolinians were terrified to leave their homes. Flatten the curve, he told us. Well, we have flattened the curve. Yet businesses remain restricted or closed altogether. Thousands of people are still unemployed. Education at all levels is still delivered over the Internet, and people are still scared. With Cooper's opening plan stuck on pause with no end in sight, North Carolinians are increasingly frustrated and angry, and the goalposts keep moving. She says Cooper is public enemy number one against school choice. This is a lengthy piece that she has at CarolinaJournal.com. And so I'm just kind of giving you the highlights here. She talks about the homeschool, or not uh, homeschooling, but school choice opportunity scholarships that Governor Cooper has promised uh, the NCAE, the teachers union, don't call it a union. He has promised them that uh, he will repeal these things, he will shut down that program. Public enemy number one on school choice. Cooper also continues his insistence for expansion of Medicaid to 700,000 mostly working-age, childless, able-bodied adults. Our current Medicaid program already covers 20% of the population. It serves poor children and pregnant women, the elderly, and the disabled. Instead of ensuring that the program meets the needs of those who need it, Cooper's expansion plan would cost an additional $6 billion in the first two years. A better, by the way, by com- uh, uh, by comparison, the entire state budget of North Carolina annually is about twenty three, twenty four billion dollars. Okay, uh, she says a better plan is to get people back to work, able to provide for themselves and their families. Open the health insurance market and let people buy the plan that works best for themselves and their families, rather than be stuck with a one size fits all government issued plan. Getting people back to work is the key to a COVID recovery. A healthy recovery depends on pro-growth economic policies. Over the past decade, since the Republicans took control of the General Assembly for the first time in over a century, North Carolina has implemented pro-growth policies, meaning less spending, lower taxes, reasonable regulations, smart investments, and savings that resulted in a strong, robust economy before the pandemic hit. Cooper, he's going to take us backwards. Higher energy costs, uh, expanded entitlement programs, higher taxes. These are all burdens uh, on families and businesses that are right now struggling to just get back on their feet. In the past few weeks, the governor proposed a budget. I went over this a couple of weeks ago when he did. We've interviewed several people about it. I mean, the budget was four months late and it was full of unrealistic and irresponsible spending, she calls it, given his way he would increase state spending nearly $1 billion and spend down all of the carryover money from last year. You, you know, the, uh, Editorial boards at McClatchy, News Observer, Charlotte Observer, right? They're always big on on calling Republicans acts uh, irresponsible and reckless whenever they're talking about, you know, holding these rallies and stuff. And we want to open schools. Oh, that's a reckless, irresponsible plan. Well, where is that kind of description for for these policies that Cooper is espousing? How come they don't ever get that uh, descriptor? Right? Reckless and irresponsible. Why are those never the adjectives? used to describe Governor Cooper's plans? Well, because they are of like mind. They believe, they believe that most, if not all, of government spending is, quote, an investment. And when you look at all spending like that, then you you can't make an argument against any of it because it all becomes an investment for something else more valuable. That's what an investment is. And that's how you end up with these savings accounts that are set up uh, for the, quote, rainy day. And they want to raid the rainy day fund all the time, even when it's not raining. <laughs> that's this, this is the see a penny, spend a penny philosophy in action. Also, raiding the unemployment insurance fund, right? You want to raid that fund when it's finally stable and it's sustainable. He, he wants to drain that thing, just like Democrats did before the... Uh, 2008, 2009 collapse. Right, that's what they did. They drained the unemployment accounts, and when that happened, then what? We had to borrow from the federal government. We were in hawk to the government. Gosh, uh, the feds. St- it was like two, three billion dollars, something like that. And that's a tax on all businesses. It's as if he created an economic nightmare on the one hand. Becky Gray writes, and now proposes big-ticket spending to fix the problem that he created with money that's going to get taken from struggling, hard-working North Carolina families. The best thing the governor can do is get out of the way. Let people get back to work safely and provide for themselves and their families without depending on gubernatorial whims of who is essential and who is not, of who is deserving and who is not. Now, you deserve to have a good night's sleep, which means you got to get over to Mattress Man, and you deserve this great deals on awesome mattresses. For starters, you get the triple zero deal, okay? That means zero money down, zero interest for up to two years, and zero payments for 90 days. Zero, zero, zero. You want to take advantage of that. They also have the free box spring with the purchase of a Biltmore mattress. These are fantastic mattresses. It's from Restonic, uh, made in Fayetteville, and these are the mattresses that are at the Biltmore. Uh, Well, not the Not the actual Biltmore House. Nobody sleeps in there anymore. I don't think anybody sleeps in there. I've seen some of the beds in the Biltmore House, and they did not look very comfortable, even for really wealthy people. But that was like 100 years ago. But I digress. In their hotel and inn that they have on the grounds, fantastic uh, accommodations. And they've got this line of mattresses made for them by Restonic, and you can pick one up at... Mattress man, mattressmanstores.com. What else do they have? Well, they got a free adjustable base with the purchase of select mattresses. They have a Queen Gel Memory Foam mattress for just $399. Okay? So go on in and pick yourself out a mattress and they will deliver it to you. They ship nationwide. They have local five-star delivery service and a 120-day comfort guarantee. Experience the difference at mattress man, buy local and sleep better. All right, so where will we go as a state as we emerge from COVID-19? Becky Gray at the Carolina Journal says if Cooper has his way, if the governor has his way, it's going to be a one-size-fits-all education, government-issued health care, more spending, more debt, and a stranglehold on the state's economy when people need and want to work. Cooper's foot soldiers in the General Assembly will sustain his vetoes and his allies on the courts will uphold his dangerous policies. So what's it going to be, North Carolina? So it is not our imaginations. The rest of the nation seems to be very, very interested in how we North Carolinians vote this election, and particularly women, more specifically white, suburban, unaffiliated women. A recent Politico article actually quoted our friend Dr. Chris Cooper from Western Carolina University as saying that uh, this Specific demographic is the swingiest voters in the swingiest of the swing states. I think that's actually uh, that's the official technical jargon for it. Republican strategists say that the GOP doesn't actually need to overwhelmingly win suburban white female independence. They can break even or they could even lose a little bit they just can't lose them overwhelmingly. Olivia perez Cubas is the communications director at Winning for Women and the Super PAC WFW Action Fund. And she joins us now. Welcome to the show, Olivia. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
1: Certainly. So first, tell us what is Winning for Women and and the Super PAC?
2: I would love to talk more about it. So Winning for Women is a fairly new organization created a a few years ago to help advance and empower conservative women leaders. We are a small but mighty team of young conservative women. Um, And we've been seeing a ton of success with what we do. However, after the 2018 midterm elections where we saw the number of Republican women slashed to just 13 in the House, we did launch a super PAC, which is actually the first Republican super PAC dedicated solely to electing Republican women. Um, And what we saw was, you know, 2018 and that cycle was very much deemed the year of the woman. However, it was really the year of the Democrat woman, not the Republican woman. They kind of watched on the sidelines as the women on the left made all these gains. And we asked ourselves, why is this happening? Why do we have so few Republican women in office? And we found that two of the main reasons are, one, the left left tends to put a target on the backs of our Republican women, and the media oftentimes overlooks or ignores them. So we kind of stepped in, we created this organization to help support them in their races and make sure that they do have that support system from start to finish. And we've seen a ton of success so far. It's been a historic year for Republican women, more than ever are running for office, more than ever have won their primary elections. And we feel really good about November and elections
1: going forward so um you mentioned the media there you are a former media person right you used to work in tv news if if i remember correctly
2: i did a very long time ago okay out of
1: college (laughs) (laughs) well all right so but you have some understanding of you know feeding the beast yeah and
2: i do and a deep respect for what they do sure
1: well, as a but former I reporter, I, I know there are limitations as well. I mean, that's I, I came from that world as well, and there's a reason a lot of those stereotypes exist. I'll just say that.
2: <laughs> Correct.
1: <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, why you mentioned that 2016 was the year of the Democrat woman? Did that have anything to do with Donald Trump being the nominee? Did did it, did his candidacy make it difficult for women to pull? the lever for him and so therefore a lot of them just sat out
2: um i think well 2018 i think on the left was probably a reaction to donald trump hmm. i however do think that 2020 where we're seeing more republican women than ever before you know people sometimes make the argument that trump to your point keeps women out of office or mm-hmm. out of the out of voting and I think that's not true, because clearly, you know, we've made such big gains this cycle, despite Trump being at the top of the ticket. So I think, you know, maybe on the left, but I don't necessarily think so on the right because of what we're seeing this cycle.
1: Yeah. So uh, what kind of messaging works when trying to target specifically this demographic of white suburban unaffiliated women?
2: yeah well i think first and foremost each candidate be it house or senate needs to be the best advocate for their district or Mm -hmm. their state they know that area better than anybody else and they need to own a very unique brand right and they need to say that i'm going to go to washington and i will do what is best for my district so when that is in line with donald trump great and when it's not that's fine i will stand up for what my district needs i think that's first and foremost I think a few of the top issues that we're seeing among among these suburban women voters number one as of late, is safety i do think all these uh, recent riots and the protests and the looting and whatnot has been a concern um, and they want to feel safe i also think the economy which in the present translates to these suburban women want to send their kids back to school they want daycares to open up again they want America to make a full economic recovery and which party will get us there safest and fastest. I also think healthcare is a big one. Mo- most suburban women uh, pay the bills in their house. They take their kids to the doctor's visits. They want and need health care that is affordable, accessible, especially amid a pandemic. They want to keep their doctor-patient relationship. Um, and that's probably another very important mm-hmm.
1: topic if you will so in North Carolina the Democratic Party has been hammering away at the Republican legislative leaders for not expanding Medicaid do you feel that that sort of fits under the category of public health or is that a direct uh, uh, you know message for this particular demographic that even if they may not necessarily need Medicaid expansion, it's it's uh, it's something that they would like to see done.
2: Um, I can't speak on that specific level. I do think what's kind of a takeaway from what we've seen is people go and they vote based off how their vote is going to impact them and their families. Um so to 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 your point, I'm not exactly sure, mm-hmm. but I do think healthcare overall is important, and people are going to vote based off what's most important for them and their family. Yeah,
1: you mentioned also the uh, the public safety component. I I don't mm-hmm. know if you saw, but moments ago, apparently, the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi went on the floor and made a comment saying, "We support peaceful demonstrations. We participate in them." They are part of the essence of our democracy that does not include looting, starting fires or rioting. They should be prosecuted. That is lawlessness. And so, of course, the reaction on the right has been, I guess they got the polling back.
2: (laughs) Right. Right. Which tends to be the trend. I think I mean, I'm encouraged to hear her say that. I think it's coming. It's a day late and a dollar short. Um. And to your point, why, why is she changing her tune? And I think it's kind of moods like this that confuse the American people um, and kind of so distrust in Washington generally.
1: Yeah, it. I, I'm full disclosure. I did not vote for Donald Trump. I left the uh, the race blank. Uh, my wife, uh, she told me she uh, she actually supported the. I guess the guy you you used to work for, Marco Rubio. She really <laughs> wanted him. Um, but uh, I left it blank. I could not. I, I didn't feel like I could vote for either one of the candidates in 2016. Um, and I, but the, and I I am now approaching this election and i have I have felt like they're going to force me to vote for Trump just as a rejection of of uh how they see uh, you know their hand being played this use of essentially what i I view it as extortion right like the the looting and the burning will continue until we put you put us in charge. And I just, I'm a contrarian like that. I will not, (laughs) I just don't, I don't want to support anybody that does that kind of bargain with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have encountered a lot of people uh, that feel the same way, that have said the same thing. People that are like, we have to reject this kind of approach to governing uh, sort of, you know, with the knife at the throat uh, that you got to vote for us or else the violence will continue. Are you seeing that sort of reaction from people who are in that, you know, in that middle, in that moderate zone?
2: Absolutely. And I I think to your point, I have heard many people make that argument and how 2016 they were caught in the middle. And I think a lot of people are seeing 2020 as a binary choice and taking it back to the suburban women voters. I do think a lot of them feel that what we're seeing from the left talks of socialism and Medicare for all the Green New Deal, now efforts to defund the police, it is too much. It's too extreme. It's a step too far. And I think a lot of these people in the middle feel like they don't quite have a home. And it really presents a unique opportunity for the Republican Party to take our message to them and earn their vote and win these folks back over.
1: So what of more urban females or rural females, the non-white females, are they less persuadable than this particular group that we've been discussing?
2: Um, that's a good question. I think historically speaking, yes, they are less persuadable. Um, I don't know if they end up kind of falling back into the camp that we talked about where what you're seeing from the left is just it's it's too extreme. And I think that, again, another opportunity for the Republican Party to bring their message to them and, and in an effort to earn their votes, because what we're seeing is just it's so far one way or the other that a lot of people don't aren't quite comfortable with it. And it's a question kind of if it's if they're uncomfortable, uncomfortable enough with it to vote for a second term for the president.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I assume this is why we've seen tweets from Donald Trump about, you know, Protecting you your suburbs, you know making like these overt <laughs> direct, and I would submit very, a little clumsy very overt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's about, right These are the direct pitches to I guess essentially female suburban voters
2: they are in his version his version of that, yes
1: yeah <laughs> yeah uh, so is there a website or uh, a Facebook group or something if people want to learn more about your organization or if they want to help? Is there a way for folks to do that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So winningforwomen.com or at winningforwomen on Twitter or Facebook. We have a list of all of our endorsed candidates. You can learn more about them, what we do, how we do it. Um, Any support you could give to these candidates if you're in a position to do so would be great. Otherwise, your support generally would just go a long way.
1: Yeah, uh, and I meant to ask earlier, uh, so I'll ask now. Are there any candidates in North Carolina that you guys are looking at, uh, or I guess I should say, you ladies are looking at uh, that that you're you're hoping to get uh, behind?
2: Um, no House candidates that we've endorsed for this first round. We might have some coming up. Um, but there are a few who we already have endorsed. I don't know if it's relevant to you all, but a few kind of future superstars of the party, if you will, Ashley Hinson over in Iowa, Stephanie Bice, who is a young Iranian American in Oklahoma, um, Beth Van Dyne in Texas. So we've got a really interesting slate, um, So you should check it out.
1: Okay. I appreciate you making some time for us today. Is there anything else you'd like to add you think uh, people would find interesting or important to know before we let you go?
2: I am good. But thank you so much for having me on and for the conversation. And maybe we can do it again soon someday.
1: Absolutely. Olivia Perez Cubas. I appreciate your time. She's the uh, communications director at Winning for Women. And uh, thanks so much. We'll touch base again, I'm sure, before the election.
2: I would love that. Thank you.
1: All right, weather's getting colder. That means it's time for Old Grouches Military Surplus. Stop on by the store in downtown Clyde, uh, pick you up some cold weather gear and clothing, military grade thermal underwear in all sizes from extra small to 3X, wool sweaters, military field jackets, wool and fleece toboggans, socks, Gore-Tex jackets. Old Grouch's Military Surplus has everything you need for the winter, whether you are working outside Whether you go in hunting, this is heavy duty, warm clothing for a lot cheaper than you're going to find at most outdoor stores. Also, emergency kits for cars. Make your kit now so you're going to be prepared. Things like a folding shovel. Uh, These are real military ones, not like those, you know. Chinese made junk warm clothing and blankets emergency space blankets emergency rations so you can leave them in the car they're not going to get you know destroyed or ruined by heat or cold and of course bags or ammo cans to store it all in and don't forget the first aid kit you put all that stuff in your car you are prepared in case god forbid your car runs off the side of the road in some you know sleet storm or uh, snowstorm you're going to be okay you've got supplies also backpacks Uh, school maybe kind of sort of reopening, military-grade backpacks that are going to last a lot longer than the cheapy ones at the big box stores. Plus, these are cool backpacks, all right? He's also got ammo cans, all kinds, all sizes. These are great storage ideas for the garage, for the shed. Um, Some of the big ones, the big cans, can even be used as like toolboxes for your truck or your trailer. You can use them for safe, dry storage, for rifles, for fishing gear, or in your garage or shed, like I said. So, uh, go on down to Old Grouch's Military Surplus. I do have some bad news. He's there's no more body armor. If it's, it, I know I can't, I can't help it. Um, neither can he. If it tells you anything about the state of things right now, <laughs> all four of his suppliers are now on six to twelve week back orders and not even taking any new customers. So, um, he said, Tim said, uh, old grouch, he said, uh, body armor and ammo are now at toilet paper and Lysol were back in March, by the way, the shop is open Monday through Saturday. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun in downtown Clyde. And of course, on the website at oldgrouch.com. So, all right, this election season, um, I figured I would bring you this story kind of disturbing, kind of terrifying. <laughs> but kind of also confirming what we uh, already suspected. There was a story at the New York Post uh, a couple weeks ago, headline, Confessions of a Voter Fraud. I was a master at fixing mail-in ballots. And they quote this anonymous person for obvious reasons. They're not willing to give their name. (laughs) So you should take that uh, for what it's worth. You know, they're not willing to go on the record with their name, which I understand why they're admitting to crimes here. Um, But they they are describing themselves as a top Democratic operative who says voter fraud, especially with mail in ballots, is not a myth. And he knows this because he's been doing it on a grand scale for decades. The political insider who spoke on condition of anonymity because he fears prosecution, obviously said fraud is more the rule than the exception. His dirty work has taken him through the weeds of municipal and federal elections in Patterson, Atlantic city, Camden, Newark, Hoboken, and Hudson County, all in New Jersey. And his fingerprints can be found in local legislative mayoral and congressional races across the garden state. Some of the biggest names, and highest office holders in New Jersey have benefited from his tricks, according to campaign records that the New York Post reviewed. An election that is swayed, he said, by 500 votes, 1,000 votes, yeah, it can make a difference. It could be enough to flip states. This whistleblower, whose identity, rap sheet, and long history, working as a consultant to various campaigns have been confirmed by the New York Post, says he's not only changed ballots himself over the years, But he has led teams of fraudsters and he has mentored at least 20 operatives in New Jersey, New York and Pennsylvania, which is, you know, a critical state in 2020. There is no race in New Jersey from city council to U.S. Senate that we haven't worked on, he said. What is this guy's politics claims to be a Bernie Sanders diehard with no horse? in this presidential race. He said he felt compelled to come forward in the hope that states would act now to fix the glaring security problems present in mail-in ballots. Quote, this is a real thing, and there is going to be a bleep in war coming November 3rd over this stuff. If they knew how the sausage was made, they could fix it. Ah, see, I don't think they want to actually fix it, though. I don't. I think there are a lot of people that are perfectly content uh, to... You know, keep control of the process as best they can, knowing how to game the system as they do, and then try to make inroads in a few battlefields. You know, the ballot has no specific security features like a stamp or a watermark. So the insider said he would just make his own ballots. Quote, I just put the ballot through the copy machine and it comes out the same way. The return envelopes are more secure than the ballot itself. You could never recreate the envelope. So. What do they do? They have to collect those from actual voters. He would have his operatives fan out, go house to house, convince voters to let them mail the completed ballots on their behalf as a public service. This is ballot harvesting. The fraudster and his minions would then take the sealed envelopes home, hold them over boiling water, and you steam it, loosen the glue, open it up, take out the real ballot, Put the counterfeit ballot inside the signed certificate and reseal the envelope. Five minutes per ballot tops, he says. That seems like, I mean, that's a lot. Five minutes? Think about it. I mean, you're doing if you're doing hundreds or thousands of ballots, the insider said he took care not to stuff the fake ballots into just a few public mailboxes. The key here, he says, is to sprinkle them all around town. That way, he avoided the attention that foiled a sloppy voter fraud operation in Patterson, New Jersey City Council race this year, where 900 ballots were found in just three mailboxes. Quote, if they had spread them all out into different mailboxes, nothing would have happened. The tipster said sometimes postal employees are in on the scam. Quote, you have a postman who is a rabid anti-Trump guy and he's working in Bedminster or some Republican stronghold and he can take those ballots and knowing like 95% of them are going to a republic, he can just throw them in the garbage. In some cases, mail carriers were actually members of his work crew and would sift ballots from the mail and hand them over to the operative. Why? So then he could steam them open and swap them out. Uh, He says they would hit up assisted living facilities and they would help the elderly to help the elderly, quote unquote, help them fill out their ballots. And a lot of times the nurse is actually a paid operative. This is what I mean when I usually talk about vote fraud and we hear from our friends on the left that this doesn't exist. You know, oh, there it's overblown. You guys are crazy. Like When did that happen? Like, when did this national awakening occur where everybody said, OK, we're not going to engage in vote fraud any longer because vote fraud is as old as elections and uh, our American history is replete with examples of vote fraud. There are a ton of them right from here in Western North Carolina. So when did, this, when did this big change of heart occur? Uh, there, there hasn't been. There hasn't been. So people who are telling you that these types of operations don't exist, they're either ignorant they're, or they're naive or they are trying to mislead you. Now, I would not mislead you on buying a new home or selling your home. You need to have a good real estate agent. Use the one that we're using. My wife and I are using is Rowena Patton. At the All-Star Powerhouse team. She and her team, they will get your house sold quickly and for more money if you are looking to buy. She's got homes already lined up. Here's her phone number, 333-4483. That's 333-4483. She outsells 99% of the realtors in North Carolina. Okay. She's a part of this community and she just so happens to be like really, really awesome at doing this. Okay. She and the team are gonna give you all the information you need to make an informed, intelligent decision whether buying or selling. Give her a call three 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 forty four eighty three or mountainhomehunt dot com and start packing. All right, the last bit here from the New York Post. When all else failed, the insider would send operatives to vote live in polling stations, particularly in states that had no voter ID. The best targets were registered voters who who routinely skip presidential or municipal elections. And you can get that information from any board of elections. He says you fill out the index card with the person's name and district. You go around the city and you say you're going to be him and you're going to be her. The insider then said uh, he would dispatch his team's uh, all over the place and at the polling station you'd go in, you'd get in line and you would vote and if they, uh, w- they would just recreate the signature and um, in the rare instance that a real voter had already signed in and cast a ballot, the impersonator would just chalk it up to an innocent mistake and bolt. The tipster said New Jersey homeless shelters also offered a nearly inexhaustible pool of reliable and viable Voters. That's a wrap for this episode. Please remember, subscribe to the podcast. Give it a positive review. I appreciate that. Links are in the description of the podcast and at thepinkcalendarshow.com. We'll talk to you later. Don't break
2: anything while I'm gone.